Welcome to the Code French podcast. My name is Stephen French, and in today's episode, we'll be talking to author and journalist Robert Scheer. What are you observing, uh, dear Bob? To start with, there was this wave of the fear of the coronavirus. Then that trickled into the fear of this like financial crisis. Now we're in this kind of fear of when to reopen the country. What are your thoughts on where we're at? You forget that I was born in 1936, when our president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, a god in my home, very famously said, we have nothing to fear but fear itself just was listening to a, an interview I did with Major Danny and two of his fellow uh, combat veterans compared to being in North Vietnam during a bombing pause. This is a piece of cake. I don't think we should have an exaggerated view of how hard this is. I do think we have a tendency to be a bit spoiled, more than a bit spoiled, and to assume these tragic situations like 9-11 and certainly this one, very real. But I do think we have a tendency to, you know, woe is us and, and to not recognize that many people around the world, often in response to things uh, that people in more secure, affluent c- countries do to them or visit upon them, uh, go through a lot of turmoil. This is a, a crushing reality test. But so far, so far, it has not gone beyond what many people in different times in history throughout the world have experienced. The important thing is to learn from this experience rather than wallow in despair. If we're learning from this experience, what would your lesson be, Bob? What would the lesson be for you? Well, first of all, it challenges the main delusion of America. It actually has a couple of components. One is government is not critical to the good life. Well, I already knew as a child that was bull, because if uh, FDR and the New Deal had not stepped in, I would have starved as a child. There was literally no food on the table other than that which arrived in a form of home relief or something. We treat government as something of a game. Most of the horrors of government are visited upon other people. We make wars that we take no accountability for. We take no accountability for the refugees and the deaths and the torture and the massacre that we have visited upon people. We take no real accountability for the extermination of Native Americans and slavery and all the horrible things done in our own history. So we both have mainly been coasting along with the idea that government is basically an inconvenience. And and now we know getting government right is absolutely critical to survival of of a society. Absolutely critical. Uh, We should have known that all along. But now very few people in America are going to have this illusion. They can, on their own or simply through the free market, so-called, take care of themselves. No. We now have, what is it today now, 26 million people who are living, in effect, on the dole. So I think it's a wake-up call, uh, a very important one, that we better get government right and government better be responsive to us or the next pandemic will kill us. We've been raised in the illusion that we're all somehow in some comfortable middle class, even when that 
never was the case. Uh, it was just an illusion. It's obliterated the comforts of class, uh, the delusion that you can shop your way out of disaster. But to, to me, doesn't it seem that we're in the kind of the, the well at the moment, the baseline well of an economy or world that's been closed and no one knows how the markets will react as things open up? What we've learned is, you know, it's like the ability to wage war. When these societies want to wage war, led by the good old USA, which is the, as Martin Luther King pointed out quite a long time ago, the major purveyor of violence in the world today, uh, we find the money. We find the money, we borrow it, we uh, tax, we do whatever we do. They find the money. Uh, Donald Trump pointed out when people say, can we really spend these trillions of dollars? He pointed out, we spent $8 trillion in, in the Mideast waging wars that made no sense and didn't accomplish anything. That's Donald Trump, by the way, who also, by the way, uh, has said we don't want to be the policeman for the world. Two enlightened statements that I've heard not come from other politicians. Now, he said a lot of dumb, dangerous things, too. But it's interesting that these two observations that we are not only shouldn't be the policeman, he didn't, should have added we're not a good policeman, we're not neutral, but the other is how much money we have spent on war. Well, for once in my lifetime since the Great Depression, the only time since the Great Depression, we are spending serious money to help take care of our own people. Uh, people who don't have jobs suddenly, 25 million additional people don't have jobs, uh, to people who are poorer and so forth. And we're actually throwing money at these problems. And so the lesson is this cruise ship, which we call the nation state, uh, had better have a notion of egalitarian medicine, medicine, justice, or we're not going to live. That means the argument for Medicare for all, no, it's go further than that. Everyone on this cruise ship called the United States had damn well better have equal opportunity and access to all the necessary medicine to sustain a healthy life, all of it, or they will get sick in ways that kill the wealthiest people as well. A warning from God, the Almighty, all right? And I don't believe in God, the Almighty. Uh, but, but if there's an argument for either believing or inventing one, there are these signals that come to us through the human experience. Or you could have a Darwinian notion about our survival and messages that come through. Or you could have poetic warnings from the great poets about justice and, it, and, and what happens when you don't pursue justice. Or you could have a warning from the Marxists uh, or, or Adam Smith or anybody about what happens when you don't care about the least among us in terms of social revolution and upheaval. So the warning comes from every religion, every great philosophy, everyone who's ever thought seriously about the human condition, whatever their inspiration, okay? And it's the message that is attributed to Jesus, Jesus in the parable of the Good Samaritan, which unfortunately is only in Luke and not as clearly laid out elsewhere. Uh, but nonetheless, if you don't care about that Samaritan who's from another tribe than the Hebrews, and who has been beaten 
and is there disheveled on the side. And if you don't stop and take care of them, you're not going to heaven, but you're also not surviving in this secular world in any kind of good way. That's the lesson. And that's the lesson of the pandemic. I'm surprised. I would have thought this event would have helped Bernie Sanders, for instance. And it's kind of obviously not worked out for him. But Uh, Both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders were accidents in the eyes of the ruling establishment. And we have a ruling establishment. Uh, we, we have a, a power elite, uh, you know, the, and it involves the, uh, well, first of all, it involves the media, certainly, because the media is owned by people who own a lot of other things. I mean, Jeff Bezos owning the Washington Post is not a, an anomaly. Uh, and so big money and the class of people who have big money has always had a lot of power in the media. It has a lot of power over our political parties, over our leading universities, uh, what's taught, what's celebrated, and so forth. So this may come a shock to some people, uh, but you should understand the whole system is designed to make uh, the power and the leadership of the most powerful people seem like an exercise in egalitarian democracy. You know, uh, and they do it through the distraction of spectacle, like sports. They do it with wars that develop a false sense of patriotism. They do it with consumerism that distract people and amuse them in many different ways. Uh, so the the reality, uh, and much more obviously so in America, because as, as opposed to Western Europe, where at least you have political parties that claim some class allegiance, some recognition that we're not all in the same class, our our leading political parties, uh, the two, uh, engage in this delusion that they are class-free, classless, classless. That great John Lennon song, Working Class Hero, and the illusion of being classless and free. That's the assumption that, you know, the con of American politics And then when both of these parties united to basically destroy a resurgent labor movement after the Great Depression, the great industrial labor movement, uh, they both uh, collaborated to destroy uh, the labor movement. They also both, under Bill Clinton, most dramatically collaborated to let Wall Street run everything, uh, run amok. What you have in America is the delusion uh, of some kind of classless society. And uh, then it, you know, it's maintained by uh, pundits and economists and social commentators and religious figures, uh, keeping up that mythology uh, and uh, focusing on everything except class outcome, income inequality, wealth, and so forth. So we focus on race or gender identity, or, or, or the, all of which are factors, but they play off a main uh, a perversion of the human experience, which is your uh, contribution to the wealthiest will judge your success and your respect and so forth. Okay, now what Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, uh, the odd couple in the sense that they only share a common age, their personal histories have nothing in common, except they both probably have echoes of a New York accent, but New York is the best place, as I learned from my 
uh, youth to observe class differences in America because they're right there, one block off from the other. Both of them represented in the 16 election, 2016 election, and now uh, represented a reaction to the failure of the system and this sort of uh, Wizard of Oz moment when we realized that we didn't have well-intentioned adults running the whole thing. We had crackpots running it. And by crackpots, I mean people like Robert Ruman and Lawrence Summers, both of whom were treasury secretaries to Bill Clinton, one of whom, Lawrence Summers, went on uh, to be head of Harvard. Uh, Robert Rubin, who had been for Goldman Sachs, went on to with Citigroup that he made legal after changing all the laws. These guys presented as very civilized or as wonderful wizards, Alan Greenspan and folk, but they were uh, self-centered, delusional uh, crackpots who cared only about their own wealth. Uh, but we didn't see that. So what happens is the system basically broke down in a very visible way with the great housing meltdown, which never the prosperity that was the illusional prosperity going back to when Bill Clinton first became president never really came back. And certainly the class, growing class divisions were not attended to. Uh, so whether we called it prosperous or it was recession or what have you, uh, the fact is the income gap kept growing and this false gig economy and illusion of freedom and so forth uh, became the norm and good, solid jobs in which you could advance uh, became the rarity and the connection between education and opportunity was broken uh, and the jobs don't exist for people coming out who are even very good at, at schools unless it's exactly the skill set that the wealthiest people want for their venture capital or what have you. And so you have a breakdown of the system. And there are two responses, which historically has been the norm, these two responses. One is the uh, racist, uh, xenophobic, right-wing response of uh, a right-wing populism, which blames, scapegoats some more vulnerable group in the society. In the case of Trump, it would be Mexican-Americans or what have you. Uh, Nixon used uh, hippies, <laughs> beatniks. Uh, but, you know, you find a group to scapegoat and you then you defend the richest uh, by going that route. In the case of Germany, of course, it was the Jews and then gypsies and homosexuals and others. And it's interesting if you go back to the study of German fascism, the major wealth centers of wealth uh, around uh, BMW and Mercedes and so forth, uh, they accommodated Hitler. Uh, they went with him, and they went with them right through the war. Uh, so that's right-wing populism. And yeah, uh, the working class got their Volkswagens, and they got some highways. They got a military that hired them, the job creation. So that's right-wing populism that leads to fascism. And then you have on the left. And uh, again, using uh, the example of the rest of the world, but our own, uh, hopefully, uh, and left-wing Left-wing populism can be can degenerate, uh, can go awry, uh, but in the main, uh, it, it should be what Bernie Sanders, hopefully will be what Bernie Sanders described as democratic socialism. And clearly, 
That's what Western Europe has embraced to one degree or another, no matter what the party, whether they call themselves conservative or uh, Christian Democrats or anything. And uh, Bernie Sanders really talked about the obvious. You can't have a modern society that doesn't have universal health care because you'll have a pandemic you can't deal with. And, and the showstopper in this election is that New York City was the hardest hit. Okay? So if you want to have a highly urbanized society where people live in close proximity, et cetera, et cetera, you damn well better have all of these characteristics of a democratic socialism. Now, what happened was the entrenched power elite, which controls both the Democratic and Republican Party, didn't want that message out there, and they didn't want that choice. And Lloyd Blankfein, the guy at Goldman Sachs, who more than anyone else bears responsibility for the great uh, uh, recession, uh, he even said he would have a hard time voting for Bernie Sanders over Donald Trump, even though he supported Hillary and claims to be a Democrat. So uh, Bernie Sanders was very threatening to this ruling elite, and uh, they chose to shut him down. And they did it in 2016, and they did it now. They demonized him. They called him, uh, you know, they harped on this word socialist. I mean, you're from England. Wasn't Tony Blair, uh, George Bush's big ally in the Iraq war, and a darling of the American establishment, wasn't he a socialist? He was, a, 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 yeah, the Labour Party leader, you know, and... Uh, he's a socialist. Uh, Why are we mincing words here? A democratic <laughs> socialist. What are we talking about? The people who, who built Germany after the war were democratic what, socialists. What, one of my favorite interviews of all time is when Jeremy Paxman from BBC Newsnight interviewed Tony Blair after he came back from Washington to meet with Bush. And it was like, well, were you praying with Bush? This is just before the Iraq war. And he, he was trying to get into specifics about where they pray. You can be a democratic socialist and pray. Uh, the, point, the point is that the idea that you could celebrate uh, Tony Blair and, and then, and not that he's in my idea of a good democratic socialist, the idea that you could demonize uh, Bernie Sanders and celebrate Tony Blair, where, I, I mean, Bernie Sanders didn't get close to having the British system. Yeah, yeah. Let's but, get let's cut to the chase here. Absolutely. You know? No, um, the so Bernie and Trump are anomalies inside the ruling classes. You, you mentioned the word the ruling class, so kind of you know that there were anomalies for Trump and Bernie to be in that world. So Trump is the president. Are you are you suggesting that there's some type of like fear from? the power elite of how he is reacting? Are you suggesting that, that there's some type of... Everybody's more comfortable with the establishment than they are ruling class. So let's take establishment. Hillary Clinton, for example, or that all that whole list of Jeb Bush and all the Republicans who were vying for the Republican uh, nomination in 2016, or the Democrats outside of Bernie, mostly Hillary, okay, they were all denying that we were in a crisis situation. They were denying the pain of ordinary Americans, no matter their color. They were denying it. They were, they, what did, Hillary Clinton, the dumbest but most perceptive insight into her mind was her statement about those are the deplorables. Okay? And they actually thought it was only malcontents who would back a Trump. 
or a Bernie Sanders, for that matter. And losers, losers. And they didn't realize that they had created a nation of losers. Okay? The establishment had created a nation of people in which many people felt left out, no way ahead, desperate. And in their desperation, they went for a guy who seemed to be a whole different deal, a new deal. Okay? And some went for a guy from the left and some went for a guy from the right. And the establishment, to this day, has failed to recognize that reality. They think that the people who back Trump are goofballs or racists or male chauvinists, uh, crazy. Well, I can tell you, I got people in my own building here who voted for him, and, and they're not crazy, okay? And, and plenty of the people I know have parents or relatives who voted for Trump. They themselves voted for Bernie. Uh, and they they know their mothers and fathers and uncles and everything are not crazy and mean-spirited and racist and everything. They know they're desperate. They're concerned. They're worried. Okay? So what I'm saying is not, it's, uh, it's an anomaly is the wrong word. The system was not working. And then instead of the people who had real power addressing that, and that's what Bill Clinton should have done. Bill Clinton did not address the problems in the country. He exacerbated them on every level. I could take you through that as a case study. Who's going to take care of the majority of the people to see that they have enough of a stake in the society that they don't go crazy, all right, that they don't feel desperate, that they don't become violent, that they don't want to storm the barricades? And you can only do that by having sensible policies. Now, let me give a shout out to Trump. I don't know how fast Democrats would have done this. They did improve Trump's bailout program, but Obama didn't have anything like this. Obama didn't save homeowners. Obama could have done uh, a moratorium on foreclosures so people didn't lose their houses. He bailed out Wall Street. He bailed out the bankers that had created the problem. He threw a hell of a lot of money at, 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 you know, Goldman Sachs and at Chase, you know, and Citigroup and all that. Okay, now, now, let me, let me just finish that thought. What has happened now is right now an unemployed person here in California can get a thousand bucks a month or 800 or something real, a week, not a month, a week, because the federal government is adding $600 to the 300 or 400 that they would have gotten from the state. So suddenly, a person out of work now is not scrounging for food in a garbage can. They're not eating dog food, okay? Uh, they're not uh, going to lose their apartment. We also had a foreclosure on, or the governor has said, you can't just throw people out of their apartment. And banks are holding off. They didn't do this in the great housing shortage, uh, saying, oh, you can't make your payment. We'll give you three months grace. Tack it on to the end of the loan. All of this is very enlightened stuff that came about in that bill. There are a lot of imperfections, and sure, the rich will get richer. They always know how. But the fact of the matter is, for the first time since the New Deal, uh, the ruling circles uh, have to recognize they better take care of the mass of people to a considerable degree, or the whole thing's going to fall apart. It's kind of bizarre and interesting that the media never picks up on this very kind of left-leaning that Trump is doing. And it, it never gets communicated to the mass 
audience, I don't think, if you watch traditional television. W would you agree with it? Because they don't give a damn, Stephen. Let's just cut to the chase. Those people covering the White House, you know, what did they do? They got these jobs because in college they showed they could pick up on the signals of people who were influential. They could work for the school paper or they could get a good grade. This doesn't make them bad people. It's what we teach in school. You know, how do you position yourself? You know, not take positions that mean something, but position yourself to be acceptable to your teachers, to the people who have power, to people who are going to hire you, and so forth, okay? And then you get out, and if you're lucky and talented and blah, 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 and you have what they want, you'll end up being the person in front of the camera or writing for some major newspaper. We've all tried to play that game. I have played that game. I've been in that bracket. I'm not a stranger to it. But the main thing is uh, you pick up on signals of what's going to advance your success and what's going to hurt it. And you're not trained to be a whistleblower, a truth seeker, or to challenge. You're ready to go, get along by going along or go along by getting along, whatever the hell the thing is. And, and uh, you're going to sound a certain way. You're going to be well-mannered and everything else. And then you find yourself in this crisis, whether it was the housing meltdown of Great Recession or now. And and what you're going to do, yeah, you, you care about what's happening to ordinary people, but basically you're, you're at work, your job is doing well, and your bosses, the people you respond to, are saying the most important thing we can do right now is tell this story in a way that the people we think are good people and don't attack us will get reelected, okay? And that means this guy Trump, who's a bore and he's a bully and he's mean to us, and he dares to make fun of the mass media and challenge our motives and talk about our ratings. Well, we don't like him at all. And since we represent the free press, we represent virtue, we represent the interests of the American people, anybody who attacks us must be horrible, right? Even though criticizing institutions, including media institutions, would seem to be an obligation of free people and, uh, you know, what free speech should and what a free press is dependent upon is criticism of yourself and your institutions. Nonetheless, it's clear why they hate Trump. Okay, I hate Trump. But as a journalist, as a thinker, my obligation is to get past my intensely subjective feelings about this. And to actually, I find it very hard in my own home to listen to the president's press conference in the company of my family. Because they interrupt everything. They challenge him. They heckle him. You know, well, I'm trying to listen to what he has to say. Okay. And so yesterday, with the day we're doing this, yesterday he said, I don't want America to be the policeman of the world. I was the only one in the room that thought that was a significant statement. They were harping about whether you should drink disinfectant or something, you know, uh, which clearly was not the intent of his remark. But I thought that was a pretty big statement. And a statement of why he didn't go to war with North Korea. And would we be at war with North Korea if the Democrats had won, which I think we would be. And we'd also be at a war in Syria if Hillary Clinton had won. So I have to, as a journalist, get past my subjective feelings and, uh, you know, my dislike. That doesn't mean I abandon my criticism. I think Trump is a horrible, white chauvinist, jingoist who attacks Mexican-Americans and all people of color uh, on a way that is neo-fascist. 
is not minor. It's very serious, and he has to be called out on it. On the other hand, if he endorses giving 600 bucks to every American, white, black, brown, or anywhere else who's out of work in addition to what your state is giving them, uh, that's a good thing, okay? Uh, and so the objectivity is uh, <laughs> a rare commodity these days. And the people who are in charge of our civilized manners and what is considered decency uh, really are much more mindful of uh, their interests, their personal career interests, I dare say, and the institutions they work for than they are of the average person. That's the end of part one. Listen to episode three to pick up on part two of this.